When God created the human race, he created us to be in fellowship, first with himself, of course, and then with other human beings. We were created to be in relationship with others. In fact, in the beginning, when uh, Adam was the only human being on the earth, God looked at the situation and said, it is not good that the man should be alone, Genesis 2.18. So he made Eve, and he told the two of them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, Genesis 1.28. That's a lot of kids. They would have fit right in here at Upcountry Church. The point is, God designed us to live and work and celebrate at times to struggle, to suffer, and overcome, and achieve, and fellowship, and worship. He created us to experience all of that in community through relationship with each other. And I'm not even sure that the word relationship is adequate to describe the connection that we're to have with one another because we can have relationships at a very casual very non-committal level, but God says that spiritually we're actually one body. And then he shows us what that looks like throughout the scriptures. In John 10, 30, among other places, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And of course, Matthew 28, 19, he said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Trinity, the oneness of God in three separate persons is a wonderful and powerful picture of individuals existing together as one in perfect unity. And then following that pattern, when God created Adam and Eve, he said, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh, Genesis 2.24. And then Psalm 127.3 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. In other words, children are a result of that union, that oneness between the man and his wife. So just as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are one, God created these other institutions where the relationships within them are to mirror the unity of the Godhead. Marriage family, and the church. In John 17, 21, as Jesus prayed for his disciples and for all future believers, that includes all of us, he prayed to the Father that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. So Jesus, Jesus himself, prayed that all of us would be one in the same way that he and the Father are one. And yet somewhere along the way, believers, at least in this country, have gotten the idea that church is optional. That if I'm treated right and if I like what it offers me, and as long as I agree with everything that is said and done there, then I might participate in the life of the church. Unless there's something else that I really want to do that day. Or someone happens to offend me, then I might just sit that day out. And so I have these conversations increasingly with people when they ask me what I do and I tell them I'm a pastor and they'll respond often with something to the effect of, well, you know, I love Jesus, just not the organized church. Well, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, 
but you don't love Jesus nearly as much as you think you do, if that is your true conviction concerning the church, because Jesus suffered and died in the worst way possible for the church. You cannot have a high view of Christ and a low view of the church and then reconcile that perspective with Scripture. That entire approach to Jesus Christ and His church is scripturally irreconcilable. They're incompatible. And so they will often then argue, well, I'm okay with the church, just not organized religion. As if the church is this indefinable, random, disorganized, unreligious population that may or may not ever gather together on a regular basis with no pastors or leaders or formal teaching or structure of any kind, with no expectations or requirements or even discipline within the body. Well, I'm sorry, brother, but all of that which you reject is actually in the Bible describing the church of Jesus Christ. Acts 2, 42 through 47 is the purest and most complete picture of the, the first iteration of the New Testament church that we have. And this is how the church is described there. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. They were together a lot. And it says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. And then as, this, as the church develops through the, the New Testament, as we'll see in our story today and in many other places in Scripture, God gave to the church leadership and structure and training to equip the church members so that we could do the work of the ministry through the church. The truth is, the church is God's sole agent for spreading the gospel from Acts 2 on. So the church was never a part of God's plan for making disciples or one option for us to consider. No, the church is God's plan for making disciples. It is the church with its structure and layers of leadership. Pastors, elders, deacons, missionaries, according to scripture, in several places, including Acts 6 with its requirements for leadership, which is spelled out plainly in 1 Timothy and Titus and in Acts, with its governmental processes and leadership roles in decision-making and ruling within the body, which is demonstrated in several places, including Acts 15, with its programs. You know, there were programs in the early church to feed and care for the poor and for orphans and for widows, which is referenced in Acts 6, as well as local individual churches that supported other churches financially when there was need. We see that discussed in Acts 11, uh, 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Corinthians 8, Romans 15. There were formal processes for discipline 
within the church, which Jesus spells out in Matthew 18. Paul references it in uh, 1 Corinthians 5. And yes, the church in some cities met in people's homes, but it also met at the synagogue in other cities. In at least one instance, the church met in a school in Acts 19, and yet sometimes they met outside. In short, they met wherever they could to best accomplish God's purposes for the church. The fact is, it is the organized, structured, and decidedly religious church that was and is God's plan for reaching the world with the message of Christ. But there's a growing number of believers in our culture who consider being a member of that organized, structured church as optional. Yet Jesus prayed that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. So we're supposed to be one, just as Jesus and the Father are one. That means there's no true version of the Christian life where participation in the life of the church is optional. Because we cannot be one if we're not experiencing life together, living out the gospel on a regular basis as described and prescribed in Scripture. And yet the church in the West, by and large, has capitulated with this idea that if, if we're going to retain people, then we must figure out increasingly creative ways to entertain and occupy their time or else they'll stay home. As if the gospel isn't enough to draw us and keep us together. And I'm telling you, I just don't buy it. In fact, I think in many cases we've neglected the gospel in favor of trying to make the church more culturally relevant. And in the process, we've become more in touch with pop culture than ever before and more out of touch with the true power of the church, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ as it is, is expressed through us by his spirit when we are, ready for this, when we are together, unified in community with one another as believers followers of Christ we're called to community to gather together consistently unified by the spirit of Christ in us we're called to community you, you can't have community without unity and that unified gathering that community is not just for our personal benefit and edification it is for that but it goes far beyond that. The, the Christian community that is the church, when expressed in true unity, that is our testimony to the world. Jesus said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. John 13, 35. So according to Jesus, we testify to all people that we are who we say we are, his followers. In other words, that testimony about who we are in Christ is legitimized because of our love, our oneness, our unity with each other. So think of it this way, and I've mentioned it before, but it bears repeating. Our testimony is at the mercy of our unity, our oneness in Christ. And so without unity, there is no community. And without community, there is no testimony. And without a testimony, we cannot make disciples. 
And so the fulfillment of that great commission that Jesus gave us that we just read to make disciples of all nations does not hinge upon the passion and sincerity of individual believers who are determined to practice personal evangelism but have little to no interest in the organized church as if the church is optional at best and a nuisance at worst. No, the fulfillment of the Great Commission is realized through the church, the community of believers that we are all called to. And certainly within that, there's a very important place for personal evangelism by people who are passionate and sincere. But even that, that happens as a result of the ministry of the church, as we'll see this morning in our text. The point of all this, I hope, is to inspire each of us to renew our commitment to the common calling that we all share as we look back and look ahead at a four-year mark of this church. I hope to inspire in each of us a renewed commitment to the common calling. It is a call to community. As we celebrate the past four years, yes, but more than that as we look ahead to all that God is calling us to that is before us. And so we've been working our way through uh, the book of Esther in our latest sermon series. We go through books of the Bible line by line, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We're going to pick that series back up next week. We've put that on pause for this morning because today we wanted to take an opportunity on this four-year anniversary of Upcountry Church to reinforce the essential role of the church in the life of every believer as we forge ahead together into greater ministry opportunities and challenges than ever before. Opportunities and challenges that can only be met by a unified body of believers working together in community. So let's turn to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. If you have your Bibles, we'll put it up on the screen as well. Chapter 4. And we're going to focus on the first 16 verses of that chapter this morning as we talk about the call to community. And just to set the scene for the story here, the city of Ephesus on the western coast of the Roman province uh, of Asia or Asia Minor, it's modern day Turkey, was a wealthy port city. It was a a very influential place, a learning center with a lot of pagan religion. But we also know uh, from Luke's writings in Acts, uh, from the first, uh, first century historian Josephus, we also have inscriptions uncovered by archaeologists, inscriptions that uh, there was a healthy Jewish presence there in Ephesus as well. So quite a mixture of cultures religions, ethnicities, along with very educated and wealthy uh, people right down to the very poor in this city. Strabo, a Greek geographer and historian who lived in Asia Minor from about uh, 64 BC to AD 24, described Ephesus as the greatest emporium in the province of Asia Minor. The Romans called it the first and greatest metropolis of Asia. So this was a, a principal center for commerce, culture and religion for the ancient world. Uh, not entirely different from some of our modern cities in the West today. And then Paul writes this letter to the church there in Ephesus in AD 62 while he was imprisoned in Rome. And just remember that as we go. So let's read it together. Chapter 4 of Ephesians starting with the first three verses. I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, 
eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So Paul starts out with, I therefore, meaning because of what I've just written in the previous chapter, which was Paul describing to these Gentile Christians that they are now fellow heirs, he says, members of the same body and partakers of the promised in Christ Jesus through the gospel, Ephesians 3, 6. In other words, they too are now sons and daughters of God. So Paul says, I therefore, meaning because you are now called to be a part of the same body of Christ, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So Paul says, because you too are called to the community of followers of Christ, you have to act like it. So walk in a manner worthy of that calling, despite the endless distractions in this city, in your culture, which I think we can certainly relate to. Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And the word walk there in the original Greek language is the word peripateo. It refers to how a person conducts their life how you live, how you occupy your time. So Paul describes it as a life of humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. He's talking about their calling to be in community with one another and what that looks like. And what is so powerful about the, the fact that Paul, of all people, is telling them this is the reality uh, of his present circumstances, which would for most people leave us with zero desire for humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with others in love, eager to maintain unity in the spirit, the bond of peace. Because Paul was writing this letter from prison for crying out loud. And for what? For some terrible, heinous crime he'd committed? No, he was in prison for preaching the gospel of humility and gentleness and peace, bearing with others in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace. It's not very fair for Paul. But no matter his circumstances, even when he was being unfairly uh, treated, unjustly treated, at times hunted by other people, persecuted, threatened, beaten, stoned, even thrown into prison. Through all of that, he was still able to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which he had been called, which was a call to unity as he lived out his life in community and he expected his fellow believers to do the same because unity in the church is not dependent upon our circumstances at any given time in our lives. It is, however, dependent upon community, which Paul demonstrates here so powerfully. The whole reason that Paul was able to do what he did, the way that he was able to look beyond his immediate predicament at any given time and find the strength that he did to carry on through the most unbelievably difficult circumstances came by way of the Holy Spirit, of course, but he was working through believers who surrounded him throughout his life in Christ. Paul derived his strength to continue from the community of believers that he was a part of. Even at the end of this letter, he refers to those who were with him, supporting him in his imprisonment. The point is, regardless of our circumstances, we're still called to be in community with other believers, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace. So when I don't feel like it, when it's not convenient, when we have other things we'd rather do, 
when trouble comes our way, when we're at odds with other people in the church, we still walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called, which can only happen as we participate in the life of the church. None of the disciples could have gone on to do what they did without the help and support of the church. And likewise, when life isn't going our way, one of the first things that some people do will be to pull back from the church, but we need the church for that very reason. Yet they will isolate themselves, which is the exact opposite of what they should be doing. And we're not just talking, by the way, about Sunday mornings here. Sundays are a small part of the life of the church. Just one part. There are six other days of the week when the heart of the church is still beating. But if we don't tap into that heartbeat, if we allow our circumstances to keep us in isolation from the church for the majority of our lives and then maybe show up on a Sunday here and there when it's convenient, we're not only not walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called, but we're also not receiving everything that we need from the church to enable us to overcome the very circumstances that we've allowed us to isolate us from the church. I'm just telling you if, you, if you think that you and Jesus is enough, you're mistaken. Because the church, which, by the way, was his idea, his creation, his bride, his plan, the church is the primary means through which he cares for us. That's why we're called to community, not just on Sundays, but to live out our entire lives in community with our brothers and sisters in Christ, because that is the conduit through which we receive all that he has for us, as we'll see in a moment. So here at Upcountry Church, we meet in the middle of the week in people's homes all around our city. Why? Because we want to stay connected in community, breaking bread with glad and generous hearts devoting our time to the teaching and the fellowship and to the prayers, to helping and supporting, praying for one another as described in Acts 2. We have ministries for men and women and kids and families and students and singles, not because we all need one more thing to do, right? No, we have ministries that meet at all different times in all different places so that we can stay connected to the community of believers that every single one of us needs in order to do and become all that he intends for us to do and to become. Yet all too often, I think too many people allow their circumstances to get in the way of that community and they isolate themselves. I can't go to community group. I have too much to do. I can't go to church on Sunday because there's someone there who doesn't like me. I can't serve on a ministry team. Sunday's the only day that I get that I don't have to be doing something. We can always find reasons to not engage in the community with other believers, but our calling is a call to community. I've said it plenty of times before. There are no lone rangers in the kingdom of God. All the disciples, all the apostles, all those who were sent out from the church in the New Testament traveled with other people. Paul was with a team of believers. Jesus sent out his disciples in pairs. The early church members were together, as we've just read, a lot. They spent a lot of time, certainly more than two hours a week, together because being a member of the church of Jesus Christ is far more than a two-hour commitment. It's a lifelong 
every moment of everyday commitment where we serve and love and worship and fellowship in community with other believers. And whether we know it or not, or accept it or not, or like it or not, every single one of us needs that in order to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. And so when our circumstances get in the way of that, and they will, they, they certainly will, we have to understand what Paul understood, that God is sovereign, he is in control and he is working in the midst of our circumstances. And so instead of pulling back when they become difficult, we actually should do the opposite and press in to the community of faith that he's called us to. Just listen to how Paul describes his circumstances, uh, keeping in mind that he's a prisoner of the emperor of Nero in Rome at this writing. Ephesians chapter 3, instead of saying, I, Paul, a prisoner, of Emperor Nero. He introduces chapter 3 with I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. And then in chapter 4, instead of saying, I, therefore, a prisoner in Rome, Paul introduces the chapter with, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord. And some translations say, a prisoner in the Lord. Okay? Paul didn't see himself as a prisoner of Nero in Rome. He saw himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus in the Lord. Now just think about how that would change your perspective concerning some really difficult and seemingly unjust circumstances that you're experiencing. How easy could it have been for Paul to say, you know what, forget it. Every time I try to do something good, something for God, it backfires and I end up on the short end of the stick. And incidentally, I hear things like that all of the time from people who still reference things that happened to them 5, 10, even 20 years ago in the church. And so as a result, they've sworn off being a part of the body. Or people say, I'm done with ministry because it's not going how I wanted it to. That, or that person offended me. Hey, you may well have a legitimate complaint that needs to be addressed. But even when we're clearly in the right and someone else is clearly in the wrong, as Paul experienced over and over and over again, that should not drive us away from the church. Paul was beaten and thrown into prison for doing exactly what God called him to do. Was that success or failure? Jeremiah spent his entire life doing what God told him to do. Not one single convert. Was Jeremiah a failure? I don't think so. Paul saw it for what it was. It was God who had allowed him to go through some really difficult circumstances to accomplish his will in Paul, yes, but also through Paul for the rest of the body. That also meant Paul remaining in community with the church through all of it so that he could receive all that he needed in order to get through those difficult circumstances. I'm telling you guys, we need that kind of perspective today because whatever your circumstances, it may be God trying to shape you, to teach you, to mature you, 
to use you to accomplish his purposes in you and through you. But that will never happen if you pull back and isolate yourself from the church. And you won't receive all that you need from God to get through those circumstances outside of the community of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, just a quick aside here, because I want to make sure we're clear on one thing. We've all probably heard about situations in churches, and maybe some of you have experienced it, where there has been systematic abuse in a church, either by the leadership or with the leadership's knowledge, and that, that wasn't being properly dealt with, or maybe not dealt with at all. That is evil. That shouldn't happen. And when it does happen, the people responsible should be removed from leadership, and in certain situations, even prosecuted, right? No one should ever expect those victims to have to stay in those churches. There is healing and a future available for every victim of abuse through Christ and yes, even through the church, but that can happen somewhere else in a healthy and safe church environment, okay? I want to be clear about that. What we're talking about today are circumstances, sometimes very difficult and even hurtful circumstances that we allow to drive us away from the church, from the community of believers that he's called us to, when he wants us to eagerly maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace by staying and working through those circumstances. And if those circumstances happen to be outside the church by not allowing that hardship to keep us from within the church, okay? Let's keep reading in this story now, verses 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So seven times in three verses, Paul uses the word one. Three of those instances point us, of course, to the Holy Trinity. He says there is one spirit in verse four, meaning the Holy Spirit. There's one Lord in verse five, referring to Jesus Christ, and one God and Father in verse six. And then with the other four iterations of that word one, Paul outlines our relationship as the church to that holy trinity. He says we are one body, which he relates directly to one spirit in verse 4, which is not a random connection. The reason there's only one body is because there's only one spirit. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Paul says, for in one spirit we are all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So the same spirit lives in all believers and followers of Christ, which makes us one body, which, which is why you can be halfway around the world and meet another believer who was a complete stranger the moment before you met them. And yet in an instant, you're able to feel at ease and even connected to that person at a deep level. It's because we all share the same spirit living inside of us. And then Paul says there's one hope, one faith, one baptism which he relates directly to the one Lord, because the Lord Jesus Christ is the reason for our hope and our faith and our baptism. And then he says, there's one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all, with the all referring to all of us, the one true believing Christian community, the family of God. So Paul is driving the point home here that we all belong 
to the same Spirit, the same Lord, the same Father, as one body. Once we become believers and followers of Jesus Christ, we are members of one true church, which is not only a profound truth for us to grasp, but it also means that unity in the church is not just a function of what we do. It's a function of who we are. I think a lot of people miss this today. We're all, every one of us, a part of the same body, which is why nothing is more important to the body than learning to function in unity. Just think about your own body for a moment. If, if your foot is broken, your body is not working together as it was designed to do. So what do you do? You look down at your foot and you say, hey, foot, you got a problem, buddy. You need to get it fixed. So let me know when you get it all worked out, when you get it all sorted, so you can come back and be a part of the body again. No, of course we don't do that, because no matter how broken the foot may be, it's still a part of the same body. It doesn't cease to be a member of the body because it's broken and hurting. It doesn't cease to be a part of the body because it's not performing like it should. It's still just as much a part of that body as it always was. Why? Because it was born into that body. In fact, the rest of the body feels the pain of the broken member. And so the whole body yearns for that foot to be healed and strengthened and restored back to its original condition. Maybe even better than before. So what happens? The rest of the body begins to work together to fix the part that's broken. The rest of the body begins to take up the slack, the other foot and the other leg and the other hip begins to hold the extra weight that's not being supported by the broken foot. The arms and the hands and the fingers begin to change the dressings on the wound. They bind up the broken parts. They do therapy on the hurting member to help it heal and get stronger. Every other part of the body plays a role until that foot is restored and doing its job again. And then it gets its responsibilities back to carry the portion of the weight assigned to it so that the whole body can function again as it was designed to. The Bible says we are one body. So when one of our members is broken... Why do we say things like, hey, I'll be praying for you, bro. Let me know how that works out. <laughs> or we treat people like they don't belong when they're broken. Why would we do that? Right? If that broken member is a true believer, a true member of the body, then no matter how broken they become, they're still a member of the body. Because their unity with the rest of us is not determined by how well they do their part, by how well they perform at any given time. No, they are a part of us because they were born into this body by the grace of God through their faith in Him. So they're a part of us simply because of who they are, a child of God, our brother, our sister in Christ. So it's our job to feel their pain and to take up the slack when they can't carry their own weight to help restore them by caring for them and helping them until they're healed and whole, maybe even better than before. Then they can take their responsibilities back and begin again to carry the weight of the body that is assigned to them. You see, our, our calling 
to this community of faith is an eternal one. It's not something that we step in and out of depending on how we feel at any given time. And it's not something that we banish others from just because they're broken. We're called to community simply because of who we are. And as individual parts of that same body, we each have different roles and responsibilities to play according to the gifts and talents that God has put inside each one of us, which is why it is so important that we're unified, all working together as he intended for us to, because the body needs all of the individual parts working as designed so as a whole it can function to its maximum potential, as we'll see in the story. Let's keep reading verses 7 through 16, and we'll finish our text for, for today. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Paul quotes Psalm 68 here in, in verse 8. That was, a, that was a victory hymn. Because when a king would go off to war and they were victorious upon their return, they would bring the spoil or these gifts back to their people from winning the war. That's what Paul is likening the work of Christ to here. He says, Jesus descended to the earth. He overcame death in the grave. And then he ascended as the conquering king to the Father's right hand. And so now he gives gifts to each of us, different kinds of gifts, to different kinds of people. And then he says that some of these gifts, namely those who are a part of the church's structure and leadership that we talked about earlier, they are there to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith the knowledge of the Son of, the, of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So we're all different. We're supposed to be. We all have different gifts. That's how he designed it to be. And then he gave to the church these apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers to help us hone those gifts and grow as members of the body into a unity of faith and knowledge of Christ, a maturity, a fullness of Christ, even though we're all different with different gifts. So let me say it this way, to be clear, oneness in the body of Christ is not the same as sameness in the body of Christ. 
Oneness is God's design for us. Sameness is not. In other words, unity in the church is not inhibited by our diversity. Actually, it is enhanced by our diversity. That's why he gives different gifts to different people so that the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, which includes a lot of different joints, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We're all equipped with these different gifts and we need that plurality of gifts in order to work properly so that we can grow up in love and unity. But it's more than just growing up into maturity and fullness and unity and faith and knowledge for our own personal benefit. Okay, every single gift that is given to you, listen, every single one of us has gifts given to us. And every single one of those gifts was given to you for the express purpose of serving someone else, others. Which means that if you're not serving the body with those gifts, then you're not using the gifts that he's given you, which is not only harmful to you in the long run, but it's harmful to the body. And so it's confession time. <laughs> because I'm a pretty patient guy. I'm a pretty patient person with people because I need people often to be patient with me. And so I get that. But I'm just going to confess to you this morning that one of the things that I really, really struggle with are folks that only come to church when they need something or want something from others. I'm talking about believers here, by the way, members of the body of Christ. Okay, we don't judge the world. We don't expect to receive anything from unbelievers. We're just supposed to love them with the love of Christ. No questions asked, no prerequisites, no conditions. Just show the love of Christ with every word, every deed, every breath. That is how the world should experience Christians. That's actually what we should be known for. That is our testimony that Jesus talked about that will help to bring others into this community of faith by his leading, of course. And I'm great with that. What I'm not so great with are those believers, those members who've been born into the body who show up two or three times a year when they need something from the church or they want something from me. And I've flat out asked a few of them at times, why don't you come 99% of the time? Why do you only show up here when you want something from us and then we don't see you the rest of the time? Why are you not here more than once or twice a year? And just recently, one of those folks said to me, because we have nothing to offer. That is patently false. Every single one of us has gifts, not only to offer, but gifts that we're responsible to use within the church in order to make the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. But when we refuse to answer that call to community, when we fail to use the gifts that have been given us to serve others, we're not only failing ourselves, we're failing as church. We're failing each other, which is a big, big deal because the church needs us. It needs every single one of us to be engaged in ministry using the gifts that have been given to us 
Why? So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth, it's what I'm trying to do this morning in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. And so just because someone may be different, maybe they don't feel like they fit in. Maybe because they don't have the background or the upbringing or the charisma or the creativity or the resources or the whatever they think others have. That does not mean they have nothing to offer. In fact, nothing could be further from the truth. The unity of the church is not inhibited by our diversity. It is enhanced by it. The church needs different people from different backgrounds with different gifts all working together in this community of faith if we are to work properly building ourselves up in love so that we can reach the lost with our testimony which is our unity. Okay, there's no true version of the Christian life where participation in the life of the church is optional. You cannot stand alone and accomplish his purposes. You cannot serve outside of the church family and accomplish his purposes. You cannot live in spiritual or physical isolation from the church and accomplish his purposes. No, the only way that you can fulfill the calling on your life is through the community of believers that is the church which again is our testimony. Remember, Jesus said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We cannot be a unified body when we try to live for Christ on our own, apart from the rest of the church. And without unity, there is no community. Without community, there is no testimony. And without a testimony, we cannot make disciples. So whatever hurt you may be carrying with you, whatever offenses of the past that maybe have altered your path, whatever differences you feel from others, whatever brokenness there may be in your life, you belong here. You belong here in the church. And if you're a believer and a follower of Christ, then you're a member. Because you've been born into this body by the Spirit of Christ in you, which means you are called to the community of faith. And so all you have to do show up and answer that call. Let's pray.